All right, grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus. Exodus chapter 26, and this morning we will go through the whole chapter. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edges of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair <clears throat> for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of the curtain four cubits. Eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtains that, it, it, that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of a bronze and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and the extra that remains in the length of the curtains of the cubit, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side that shall cover it. You shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins covering of goat skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons of in each frame for fitting together. You shall, you, so shall you do to all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, Forty bases of silver you shall make under the twenty frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, twenty frames and their forty bases of silver, two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward you shall make six frames. You shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they shall be separate beneath the, but jointed at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be <clears throat> with both of them. They shall form two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver. Sixteen bases, two bases under one frame, two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, 
Five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frame on the other side of the tabernacle. And five bars for the frame on the side of the tabernacle at the rear, at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan, for it was shown to you on the mountain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple scarlet, purple and scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy pl- uh, uh, the testimony of the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, finely twinned linen, embroidered with needlework. And you shall make a screen, f- you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Lord, we ask that as we look at these specific details of the building of this tent that you've given to your people, that you would help us to understand why you gave it and the foreshadowing it gives to you, Jesus, and ultimately to our eternal home in heaven. God, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, so we ask you to fill us with your spirit here this morning that we might be led by you, Lord, for your glory and your great namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, This is a lengthy section, and unless you are um, engineering-minded, this probably just sounds like a big blur to you as I read it. And to be honest, as I was reading this over and over, typically my pattern for preparing for a sermon is I read the text first thing when I get into my office Tuesday morning for about an hour, over and over and over and over, with a little pad of paper next to me, and I start jotting down any notes that come to my mind as I'm doing that, because later in the week they might be something I come back to and find most of the time it's nothing. It's just kind of a way to keep my mind focused on the text rather than wandering all over the place. This week, my mind wandered all over the place. And I drew all kinds of little pictures and tried to picture this. And I tried to, and, and as I was reading through, my mind would get just lost. And, and just frankly, there's a lot of scripture that does that. And there's a lot of places in scripture that as we're reading through it, if we're doing like a yearly reading Bible program kind of thing, it's one of the places we want to blast through. And this is frankly one of them for me. I am not of the mindset where as I read through this, even still today, and I've read this text probably 40 times this week, I still can't picture it in my mind even as I read it. 
Now, because of that, many people over the years have built tabernacles or have tried to build a model of a tabernacle uh, so that you could picture it and you could see all of these things that are laid out for you here. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen one. Anybody ever seen one built actually out there? Okay, I've seen a couple of them. And the interesting thing, along with that some people will build them, every book that I read pretty much this week had some kind of picture of a tabernacle as well. And every one was different. <laughs> every single one had a different way of posting, you know, the tarp over the top or the way that the pillars were set up or what the tin and the, the silver uh, bases of the posts look like and this. Uh, everything was different. There was no one thing that was same over another. Even the articles inside the tabernacle that were drawn or that I've gone to go see from time to time are still all different. Now, they have much similarity, right? It's really hard to make anything other than a table for bread to sit on, other than a table for bread to sit on. Now, the dimensions might be a little different in height and the this and that. So, but there's going to be some differences in the artistic way that they're rendered. Now, here, God gives us exacting pattern for how to do it. In fact, verse 30 says, You shall erect a tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So, what we have is Moses being given instruction that he writes down to take back down for the people. But God apparently showed him a little model in the, up on the mountain. That's wild. <laughs> I don't have any idea what it looked like. That would have been, man, talk about something cool to experience. This is a kind of miracle you don't hear very much about. Uh, you know, God showed some little, like, Star Wars hologram of the way it's supposed to be, and you know, and he can, Tony Stark it, pull it out and put it in and that kind of thing. I don't have any idea, but I think it's absolutely amazing that God was so specific that he didn't just give Moses words, but actually showed him, here's exactly what the thing is supposed to look like. Now, having said that, there is a passage for us in Hebrews chapter 8. Let me just read it to you real quick where it says in verse 5, uh, the priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the writer of Hebrews actually quotes verse 30 here in reminding the Hebrew writers that the priests, when they served in the tabernacle and then the temple, when the temple was built, what they were serving was not something that was ever intended to be permanent. It was a shadow. It was a type. It was a foreshadowing of heavenly realities. So perhaps what Moses saw was a glimpse of heaven itself, where we know from later on in Hebrews, it says Jesus went and offered his own blood before the altar there in heaven. Now, whether there is an actual altar there in heaven or whether that's language God is using to condescend to help us understand something we couldn't understand spiritually, I'm not entirely sure. 
And it doesn't really matter what, what the exacting logistics of it are, except for the fact that it was effectual. It, was, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. So the tabernacle did what it was supposed to do, typified heaven on earth. That's the point of the tabernacle. Heaven on earth. It's a little tiny itty-bitty slice of heaven, if you will. The, the, the people here who were slaves for 400 years are now brought out by God out into the wilderness and God now not only brings them out into the wilderness and not only stands before them in this miraculous pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, but he even more intimately chooses to connect with his people by going down into a tent and dwelling there with his glory being on display for the high priest to go in and see once a year between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. So God dwelt there. The whole point of this is heaven has come down to earth and touched earth. That's what this tabernacle represents and pointed forward to. Now, in looking at this really quickly, there are four big categories of instruction that were given. The first big category is the innermost covering, okay? So this is the covering that would be inside the tabernacle. So when you go inside, you see something different than you would see if you were looking at it from the outside. From the outside, it didn't look like very much at all. You have three layers of animal hide covering over the tabernacle from the outside. Now, we don't know exactly. Well, let me back up. From the inside, though, you have this extremely intricately, finely woven linen that was beautiful in terms of its coloring, in terms of its artistry, and you have cherubim weaved in all throughout this. So as you enter into the tabernacle, you no longer just see animal hides, but you see, because of the light of the candelabra, these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful colored pictures of cherubim on the right, on the left, on top of you, two in front of you on the veil. They were also inside in the Holy of Holies that, again, you wouldn't see if you were to go in there as a priest, but only the high priest would get to see. But they were beautiful. And then you have the outward covering the outward covering is interesting because it's designed more for utility than it is for beauty. Now, I, I'm not a desert guy. <laughs> My dad used to hunt regularly. And when I say hunt, I don't mean like, go. well, he would go and get the big things. But his thing was varmint hunting. Coyotes, kit fox, things that you find out in the desert. And so he would get pack up his truck and he would head out into the desert and he'd spend days, weeks sometimes out there hunting these coyotes, these kind of things. And he loved it. But I'll tell you what, when he would come back, everything stunk. Everything was dirty, filthy, everywhere. He had to deep clean everything in order to just get it habitable again for his next trip. Because the desert is a dirty, filthy, an unrelenting place mm -hmm. at times. This tent 
was designed to function as God's presence amongst his people in the wilderness. Now, God knows it's for 40 years. In fact, it's even more than that. Because when they get into the land, there's a couple of, well, not quite a couple of hundred, but close to a couple hundred years where it still sits at Shiloh before David even takes Jerusalem, before there's even a temple built with Solomon. So there's a long time where this tabernacle is going to be the centerpiece for God's presence amongst his people here on earth. A long time, hundreds of years, this tabernacle is going to remain. Like I said, God knows it at this point. The people don't quite know it at this point. But God builds it not just for beauty, but also for utility. And these three, maybe four, depending upon how you count, extra levels of covering were intended to keep the elements out and keep what is inside protected. Now, we don't know what some of these animals are, to be perfectly honest. I know here it says things like ram skins and goat skins. Some of your Bibles are going to say badger skins. One even says dolphin skins. Okay? Now, the reason why is because we don't exactly know what these animal skins were. We, we don't know. I mean, there'd be a lot of dolphins. There'd be a lot of badgers to harvest to, to make this entire thing. I mean, we're talking about big, huge sheets that are, you know, 45, 50 feet long by six feet wide. I mean, these are enormous, enormous curtains, the Bible uses the word there, that are all sewn together through these rings. They're all clasped together in order to keep the thing as a unified whole. But we don't know exactly what these animals are. They're lost to history, which is fine. doesn't really matter. But if we were going to build one anyways today, the whole point was from the outside, it would look relatively unremarkable, except for the fact it was cordoned off by a wall, which we'll get to later on in our study. And it was huge. I pr- by no means is the biggest tent ever built, Right? You could actually take this and put this inside some modern circus tents. Okay, so some of our modern circus tents are just vastly bigger than the tabernacle was itself. But the point of it wasn't to be the biggest thing ever. The point was to demonstrate the holiness of God. That he is holy other and he is the one who will choose to come down and he's the one who will dwell amongst his people. Not the other way around. We don't choose. He's the one who condescends. He's the one who decides. He's the one who stoops down and brings heaven to earth. We don't bring earth to heaven. Now, on from there, this frame that's set up is interesting as well. You have these boards, and there's 50 of them on a side, and then there's some on the back side, and they're held together by just three poles. Now, I don't know functionally how that works, But apparently it worked great. (laughs) Um, They had these big, huge, golden overlaid poles that went through parts of these beams that held it together. So when you would walk into the tabernacle, you wouldn't see the curtains right there. You would see that framework. The curtain was on the outside of the framework. Then you have those furniture, pieces of furniture, inside the framework. So as you walk in, you see this beautiful framing along with those beautiful tapestries there in front of you. And then again, into the Holy of Holies, you would go and you'd find 
there to be the Ark of the Covenant. Then lastly, what you have here with the tabernacle is the dividing curtains. And there's two, actually. Um, one is for the front, and it's not nearly as ornate as the one that's hung in the middle that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place, which is where most of the time is spent here in our text. These dividing veils were intended to communicate, again, the holiness and the otherness of God. You do not have access directly to God. You have access via a mediator through other means. But the whole point is, yes, God is here in your presence but you still are separated from God and you need to have somebody come to God on your behalf because he is so holy, so righteous, so heavenly that you being who you are, unless God does something to you, anoints you in some way like he would a priest, don't have the pleasure, don't have the privilege of coming before God on your own. Now, the mistake many people have made and do still continue to make is that you assume because God's presence is here, I'm okay with God. I mean, how many of them did that? Well, we got the tabernacle literally right there. <laughs> of course we're okay with God. Of course God loves me. Of course God's happy with me. Of course God is pleased with me. He's literally put his home right here next to mine. I'm a neighbor of God. How could he not love me? Of course he does. And it's very easy to understand that we can presume upon God's presence, therefore meaning that we are therefore okay with God. And the reality is, is they weren't. And they weren't so often of the time. It's interesting, even when Jesus comes, this, they, they have a similar problem. In Luke, for example, in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is sending out his 72 disciples, he's giving them instruction for where they're to go, what they're to do, how they're to uh, treat, how they're to um, compose, comport themselves before other people, and this and that. He says, whenever you enter a town, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Sounds, okay, the disciples of Jesus himself come into a town. Somebody shows them hospitality. They eat whatever is before them. And then they go around the town healing the sick and saying, the kingdom of God has come near to you. You'd think that that would be persuasive for people, right? But when you enter a town and they don't receive you, go out into the streets and even the dust of the town that clings to your feet, wipe it off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Tell them it will be more bearable in Sodom and Gomorrah than on that day for them. Wow. Wow. So the, the disciples go into a town, they perform all these miracles and say the kingdom of God has come near to you and the very first response Jesus anticipates is rejection. It isn't. Now they're going to love this stuff. <laughs> I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, and this person was 
talking about how that they're, they're praying for more miracles to happen because they want to see a revival be poured out. They want to see a, a whole you know, mass of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the idea was that if all these miracles happen, everybody will just come to the Lord. Well, that didn't happen in Jesus' day when Jesus himself was right there. Instead, the kingdom of God came and dwelt amongst them and they rejected it. Because people, by nature, are God-rejectors. We're not, by nature, God-acceptors. We, by nature, want God at a distance. We don't want Him near. We need God to be the initiator, to change our heart, to change our life, for us to want Him to be near us at all. You know, I, I think you think about the you know, the, the workspace or, or, or where, you know, the guy who runs the place is always on the camera and he's just watching what everybody's doing and he just is like looking, you know, just looking. You, you hate that kind of a, a place to work, right? You don't want that. Man, that sounds awful that somebody's just constantly looking over your shoulder. Well, that's just what, this is what people have the idea that God is like. And so they don't want him in their presence. So even if he's doing miracles, even if he's doing wonderful things, he still, they still don't want him in their presence. In fact, so much so in Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus, right? These are the guys who are supposed to know their Bible the best. They come to Jesus and they say, when will the kingdom of God, pardon me, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and saying, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look here, here it is. Or look there, there it is. Behold, the kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. It's here. The kingdom of God is here. And he's talking to the Pharisees, the very people who just in a few short hours a few feet, well, a couple of days from this story are going to kill him. And his whole point is the kingdom of God is here. It's not look over there or, hey, it's over there. Or, you know, you need to journey to this destination to get to the kingdom of God. It's not like that. It's here right now. And they couldn't even accept it. By nature, we do not accept and want God's presence amongst us. But we do assume it. And that's what these people did. It's, this is where the Christian struggles with this particular thing. Is we I go to church. I can, think of, I can think of dozens of people right now, immediately off the top of my head, that, well, I've been a member of the church for 50 years. Can't even tell you how many thousands of dollars I've tithed. I, the, I've served on just about every committee that there is. I mean, come on. And yet, when it comes to the matter, if, if I were to just ask them simply, hey, how is your relationship with the Lord right now? Wouldn't have a clue how to answer that. Not a clue. They'd revert back to, well, I tithed last month. What are you asking me, Pastor? Well, well, well I did my share at the, the potluck. I mean, I, I brought three whole plates of food for people. Not... My relationship with the Lord is such that I am regularly in love with the Lord and seeking repentance. 
that I'm regularly going to him and wanting to be in his presence, that I'm regularly enjoying the company of the Lord as I read my Bible, as I pray, as I get together with my brothers and sisters and we talk about the things of Scripture and talk about the things of the Lord. I mean, listen to the words that Joel read for our call to worship. One thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing, David says. This is the biggie. This is what I'll seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. That's somebody who loves the presence of the Lord. That's somebody who wants to be near to God. Nothing else matters. I can divest myself of everything if I get a dwell in the house of the Lord. If I get a gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. The inside of the tabernacle was designed to convey to the people of Israel the beauty of the Lord. And that it is something that should be desired. But it was inside. And they didn't desire it. And they presumed upon his presence. Many, many, many ways. Now, three things that I want to point out that I think that this text does communicate to us. And I've already alluded to all three of them already, but I want to explicitly, especially if anybody takes notes, point them out. Number one is with the tabernacle, the way it was set up, okay? So it was right dead in the middle of the camp. And the entrance to the tabernacle faced east, meaning if you wanted to enter into God's presence, you needed to go west. And you would enter in and you would go west. Now, in, if you were going into the tabernacle, you would be surrounded by the people of God on all sides. Now, some people will point out that if you do the math with all of the tribes, it seems to indicate that they're set up in a cross. Well, it'd be a very lopsided cross. But uh, if you really want to stretch that analogy, you're welcome to. I, I just think that they were probably not set up in perfect rows in the shape of a cross, but probably more like an oblong, like an egg kind of shape as they camped around. It seemed like that would be more practical than um, another way of setting it up. But even if you lived there around the tabernacle, your access was still limited. Your access was still limited. The holiness of God is such that we as fallen creatures are no longer permitted into the presence of the God. And it's very first given to us in Genesis chapter 3. When in Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and following, God says, we got to kick man out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. And so they are removed from the garden and they are removed, forced out eastward, the opposite direction of God's presence. The way you would enter God's presence in the tabernacle is westward. The way you would enter God's presence in the Garden of Eden was westward. 
And I don't want to make too much of that, but just simply to point out the fact that Eden was a type, a prefiguring even of the tabernacle. It was a place where you met God, where you had access to God. And when sin came into the world, they were removed from the access that they had to God. And it continued all the way on into today. And in their day, they didn't have access freely to God. As we go on, we're going to find more and more and more that there's a whole lot of way, things that they needed to do in order to have access to the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is those who knew the Lord best and learned of the Lord greatest, even under the old covenant, would find themselves saying, bulls and goats, lambs and birds, sacrifices you don't desire. But instead, what you desire is a pure and a contrite heart. What you desire is somebody who desires your presence, right? King David himself said this. You don't desire the blood of bulls and goats. Because those were types to point forward to the death that we needed to have in order to have access to God. And the blood of bulls and goats could never, ever, 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 ever really atone for sins. I mean, seriously, what dumb animal could possibly cover the sins you've committed in your life? No matter how big the animal, no matter how significant the animal, it's an animal and you're not. You are creating the image of God and you violated that image. They had not. All they can do, the best they can do, is that you offer them as God commanded and by faith, trust, God accepts this because he said he would. Again, your access is limited. You still have to come by God's prescribed way, God's prescribed means to get to him. Now, the beautiful thing is under the new covenant, we no longer have that distance from the Lord anymore. However, we still certainly come to him appreciating and understanding his holiness, don't we? In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That word confidence is a word that the old covenant saint couldn't say. They're coming by faith, but there still is a fear and a trepidation, isn't there? They're coming by faith, but there still is like it is a raw act of faith. I know God said he promised he would forgive me of my sins, but as I put my hands on this animal and I confess my sins and it is slaughtered and placed upon the altar and burnt up and I see it burnt before me, I still ask the question, am I really, did that really do it? At least somebody who is concerned about these matters would ask that. But we have a confidence and our confidence is not in that, did that animal really do what it needed to do? But instead, it's Jesus Christ. And I don't have that same question of, boy, could that really accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish? Because God himself came down and took on flesh and became my sacrifice. And if God himself came down and did it, there's no more asking or questioning, ooh, did it really work? Did it take? But it did. 
Because Jesus Christ is the one who came and gave us this access. This is why we have confidence. It's not because we intrinsically are better as New Covenant saints. It's because we have access through not blood of bulls and goats and rituals and symbols and feasts and holidays, but instead it's in the person of Jesus Christ who is God-man, which is why we have acceptance, why we have confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We have confidence to enter into holy places. No old covenant saint apart from a priest and no old covenant saint apart from the high priest could enter into the holy place, much less the holy of holies. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, it says here with a new and living way that we have confidence and we come before God. We come into the very presence of God. We come to the holy of holies. To a literal holy of holies. And it's better than the old one. We don't need to come into a tent. But right now, if there was still a tent built, and let's say it still had all the furniture that it had, and let's say there was still all the superstition around it that existed around it back in those days, we could, because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for us, walk right on in there and have no fear at all that God was somehow going to strike us down. Because we have access not only to a place here on earth that was a shadow of what was supposed to be better, but we have access to the better. We literally come before the throne of God. And we see that in Revelation when the 24 elders fall down. That's the type of the old, the symbol of the old covenant saints and the new covenant saints all gathered together to worship God in his heaven before his throne. And beloved, that's where we are. We really are now. How can we have such a small church? How can I preach to such a few people? Because I'm not. We're coming before God Almighty and an innumerable number of saints. We're coming with all of the angels and all of the collected redeemed of all of history and we are worshiping God collectively right now in his heaven. This is what we're doing. This is preparation. For game day. <laughs> this is we're doing right now the glorious work of rejoicing and worshiping God here right now in his heavenlies. Now we come by faith believing he is worshiped in his throne room right now as we come. This is why it doesn't matter how many of us there are because we're coming before God. He's the object of our worship. He's the one. We're not the audience here. He is. All of this sermon I ever prepare is designed to do is get your head focused on the Lord and get you thinking upon Him. You worshiping Him. That's the point. 
The point is, is that you should be more in love with Jesus and know him better at the end of the sermon than when we started the sermon. When you walk out of these doors than when you came in because we're coming to the very presence of God as we worship him. So we are right now in the Holy of Holies because we are in the very presence of God as we worship. You know that, right? This is the confidence we have as we come and we worship the Lord. This is why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as has been the habit of some, but instead we come with joy, and it doesn't matter if there's eight of us, 800 of us, 8,000 of us, or seven of us. It doesn't matter because we're coming before God and we're worshiping the Lord in his presence with confidence with assurance because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So number one, the tabernacle symbolized their limited access to God, but it points forward to our confident acceptance to God, our confident access to the presence of the Lord. Interesting thing is, the second thing that the tabernacle typified for the Old Covenant saint is that they had to be purified if they were going to have access to God at all. They needed to be purified. And you think of all of this, the thing that I read at the beginning that just was kind of mind-numbing a little bit, all of that points to the fact that they are impure to come to God on their own and they needed to be purified in order to come to the Lord. And it isn't just outwardly. They needed to be purified in mind, in body, and soul. This is why God says in the book of Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. You have to do that if it's going to be acceptable to the Lord. And under the Old Covenant, you think, good night, how do you do that? Has anybody, has any of you ever worshipped God with all of your mind? With uh, one second? With all of your soul? With all of your body? Ne never. I, I can think back of exquisite times of worship that I've had. Now, I'm, I'm not a mystic in the sense that many are. There have been mystical times where I have worshipped and singing and praying and have fallen out, not be like getting slain in the spirit kind of thing, but I mean just like, like just undone before the Lord through singing, through hearing of the word, through praying. And just I remember times of laying before the Lord, weeping just so grieved over my sin, yet so enjoying the fact that I've been saved by the Lord. And even in those moments, I can look back and still see me going, oh, do I got to go yet? <laughs> you know? Because we're never perfectly there, are we? But perfection is what God requires. Perfection is what is necessary. Uh, David, again, in Psalm chapter 15, Psalm 15 says this, O Lord, verse 1, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who's going to be in your tabernacle, Lord? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks the truth with his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, 
who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, swears to his own hurt and doesn't change, and who does not put his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Wow. (laughs) You have to do all of those things all of your life for you to dwell in the presence of the Lord in his tent. That's the entirety of the psalm. Be perfect, you get God's presence. Whew, the tall standard. Well, nobody under the old covenant ever measured up, but David understood, many of the Old Testament saints understood, that there is no measuring up, and that's the point. And it's why in Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews is writing to his Jewish brothers who are going back to Judaism, they're leaving Christianity, he says, what in the world are you doing? In verse 12 of chapter 9, it says, He entered Jesus into the holy place, not by means of blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of bulls and the ashes of the heifer for purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will he purify our own hearts from these dead works? If you try to live a life of Psalm 15. You will be extremely arrogant. You will be extremely cocky, but you will also inevitably be extremely doubtful because have you actually done enough? You might think you have, and outwardly you look really a whole lot like you do. The Pharisees sure did, right? Boy, they were confident. (laughs) right? They were scrupulous. They looked at Psalm 15 and said, oh, those are the Cliff Notes version. Let me tell you how to really do it. But they couldn't ever live up. They always had a defiled conscience. And the proof is, when Christ came, they didn't want him in their presence. Just like under the Old Covenant, they didn't want God in their presence either. But we through the eternal spirit, through Jesus Christ who offered himself without blemish, he purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now my conscience is no longer questioning all the time, oh, did I do enough? Oh, did I do this? Oh, man, ah, my conscience doesn't do that anymore. My conscience now goes, Jesus Christ. He did it all. He is the perfect hat. Now I dwell in his presence. I can dwell in God's presence because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So therefore, we must be perfect because the tabernacle communicates you don't have access to God. You can't do it under the old covenant. It was a shadow that pointed forward to the new covenant. And now we see that in Jesus Christ, we have been perfected. Which finally leads us to the last point. Christ is our true tabernacle. Christ is the true tabernacle. He's what it always pointed forward to. In John chapter 1, in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, 
The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is literally the word tabernacled. Now you understand why it doesn't say that, right? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That'd be really confusing for many people. Dwelt among us is a much easier way to render that word. We understand it. But it's literally the word tabernacle. He came down and he took on flesh. A temporary abode, as it were, just like God did with the temple. Pardon me, with the tabernacle. He took on flesh and he displayed the glory of God. Again, Hebrews, we're looking at Hebrews a lot this morning, but in chapter 10, it says in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool. For by a single offering he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit also bears witness, saying that after uh, for, to us, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the new and living way, he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest who is over the household of God. Jesus Christ offered himself and he is the one who as the tabernacle here on this earth, he came and dwelt among us. He's the one who gave us access. He's the one who offered himself on our behalf that we might be reconciled to God. And beloved, as we close here, the whole type and shadow of that old covenant system with this building that we looked at is that your access was limited, but if you were going to come to the Lord, you needed to come through the prescribed means that he gave. And the only prescribed means that ultimately could actually save anybody was Jesus Christ. Because he adds here, or he says here, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The tabernacle was complete with the person of Jesus Christ. There's no more offering that we need to make. There's no more sacrifices that we need to perform. There's no more ritual duty that we need to do in order to be right before God. Instead, what we do is we come before the Lord by faith, believing that his death and sacrifice was sufficient to save us and that he, as our true tabernacle, now indicates to us that we have free and confident access to God himself forever. Praise the Lord. Father, we love you.
We thank you for your grace to us in the person of Christ. Lord, you gave this tabernacle as a beautiful picture of what it means to be outside of your presence and the need we have for your presence. How you dwell in the midst of your people, but yet, Lord, you are still outside of the realm of, being, of being, accepting these people. But Lord, you accept us because we come through faith in Jesus Christ. And now that he has sacrificed himself as our true tabernacle, we have perfect forgiveness of sins. Oh Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord, and enliven our hearts with these truths. In your name, amen.